Section 4 of Invisible Links This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack the Spirit of Fasting and Petter Nord, Part 4 Behind the town the mountain walls rise perpendicularly, but after one has climbed up them by steep stone steps and slippery pine paths, one finds that the mountain spreads out into a wide, undulating plateau, and there lies an enchanted wood. Over the whole stretch of the mountain stands a pine wood without pine needles, a wood which dies in the spring and grows green in the autumn, a lifeless wood which blossoms with the joy of life when other trees are laying aside their green garments, a wood that grows without anyone knowing how, that stands green in winter frosts and brown in summer dews. It is a newly planted wood. Young firs have been forced to take root in the clefts between the granite blocks, their tough roots have bored down like sharp wedges into the fissures and crevices. It was very well for a while. The young trees shot up like spires, and the roots bore down into the granite. But at last they could go no further, and then the wood was filled with an ill-concealed peevishness. It wished to go high, but also deep. After the way down had been close to it, it felt that life was not worth living. Every spring it was ready to throw off the burden of life in its discouragement. During the summer, when Edith was dying, the young wood was quite brown. High above the town of flowers stood a gloomy row of dying trees. But up on the mountain it is not all gloom and the agony of death. As one walks between the brown trees in such distress that one is ready to die, one catches glimpses of green trees. The perfume of flowers fills the air, the song of birds exults and calls. Then thoughts rise of the sleeping forest and of the paradise of the fairy tale, encircled by thorny thickets. And one, one comes at last to the green, to the flower fragrance, to the song of the birds, one sees that it is the hidden graveyard of the little town. The home of the dead lies in an earth-filled hollow in the mountain plateau, and there within the grey stone walls the knowledge and weariness of life end. Liliacs stand at the entrance, bending under heavy clusters. Lindens and beeches spread a lofty arch of luxuriant growth over the whole place. Jasmines and roses blossom freely in that consecrated earth. Over the big old tombstones creep vines of ivy and periwinkle. There is a corner where the pine trees grow mast high. Does it not seem as if the young wood outside ought to be ashamed at the sight of them? And there are hedges there, quite grown beyond the keeper's hands, blooming and sending forth shots without thought of shears or knife. The town now has a new burial place to which the dead can come without special trouble. It was a weary way for them to be carried up in winter, when the steep wood paths are covered with ice, 
and the steps slippery and covered with snow. The coffin creaked, the bearers panted, the old clergyman leaned heavily on the sexton and the gravedigger. Now no one has to be buried up there who does not ask it. The graves are not beautiful. There are few who know how to make the resting place of the dead attractive, but the fresh green sheds its peace and beauty over them all. It is strangely solemn to know that those who are buried are glad to lie there. The living who go up after a day hot with work go there as among friends. Those who sleep have also loved the lofty trees and the stillness. If a stranger comes up there, they do not tell him of death and loss. They sit down on the big slabs of stone, on the broad burgomaster's tombs, and tell him about Petter Nord, the Värmland boy, and of his love. The story seems fitting to be told up here, where death has lost its terrors. The consecrated earth seems to rejoice at having also been the scene of awakened happiness and new-born life. For it happened that after Petter Nord ran away from Halverson, he sought refuge in the graveyard. At first he ran towards the bridge over the river and turned his steps towards the big town. But on the bridge the unfortunate fugitive stopped. The kingly crown on his brow was quite gone. It had disappeared as if it had been spun of sunbeams. He was deeply bent with sorrow. His whole body shook, his heart throbbed, his brain burnt like fire. Then he thought he saw the spirit of fasting coming towards him for the third time. She was much more friendly, much more compassionate than before, but she seemed to him only so much the more terrible. Alas, unhappy one, she said. Surely this must be the last of your pranks. You have wished to celebrate the festival of love during that time of fasting which is called life. But you see what happens to you. Come now and be faithful to me. You have tried everything and have only me to whom to turn. He waved his arm to keep her off. I know what you wish of me. You wish to lead me back to work and renunciation. But I cannot. Not now. Not now. The pallid spirit of fasting smiled even more mildly. You are innocent, Petter Nord. Do not grieve so of what you have not caused. Was not Edith kind to you? Did you not see that she had forgiven you? Come with me to your work. Live as you have lived, the boy cried more vehemently. Is it any better for me, do you think, that I have killed just her who has been kind to me, her who cares for me? Had it not been better if I had murdered someone whom I wished to murder? I must make amends. I must save her life. I cannot think of work now. Oh, you madman, said the spirit of fasting. The festival of reparation which you wish to celebrate is the greatest audacity of all. Then Petter Nord rebelled absolutely against his friend of many years. He scoffed at her. 
"'What have you made me believe?' he said. "'That you were a tiresome and peevish old woman "'with arms full of small, harmless twigs. "'You are a sorceress of life. "'You are a monster. "'You are beautiful and you are terrible. "'You yourself know no bounds nor limits. "'Why should I know them? "'How can you preach fasting? "'You who wish to deluge me with such an overmeasure of sorrow. What are the festivals I have celebrated compared to those you are continually preparing for me? Be gone with your pallid moderation. Now I wish to be as mad as yourself. Not one step could he take towards the big town. Neither could he turn directly round and again go the length of the one street in the village. He took the path up the mountain, climbed to the enchanted pine wood, and wandered about among the stiff, prickly young trees until a friendly path led him to the graveyard. There he found a hiding place in a corner where the pines grew high as masts, and there he threw himself weary unto death on the ground. He almost lost consciousness. He did not know if time passed or if everything stood still. But after a while steps were heard, and he woke to a feeble consciousness. He seemed to have been far, far away. He saw a funeral procession draw near, and instantly a confused thought rose in him. How long had he lain there? Was Edith dead already? Was she looking for him here? Was the corpse in the coffin hunting for its murderer? He shook and sweated. He lay well hidden in the dark pine thicket, but he trembled for what might happen if the corpse found him. He bent aside the branches and looked out. A hunted deserter could not have spied more wildly after his pursuers. The funeral was that of a poor man. The attendance was small. The coffin was lowered without wreath into the grave. There was no sign of tears on any of the faces. Peter Nord had still enough sense to see that this could not be Edith Halverson's funeral train. But if this was not she, who knows if it was not a greeting from her? Peter Nord felt that he had no right to escape. She had said that he was to go up to the graveyard. She must have meant that he was to wait for her there, so that she could find him to give him his punishment. The funeral was a greeting, a token. She wished him to wait for her there. To his sick brain the low churchyard wall rose as high as a rampart. He stared despairingly at the frail trellis gate. It was like the most solid door of oak. He was imprisoned. He could never get away until she herself came up and brought him his punishment. What she was going to do with him he did not know. Only one thing was distinct and clear, that he must wait here until she came for him. Perhaps she would take him with her into the grave. Perhaps she would command him to throw himself from the mountain. He could not know. He must wait for a while yet. Reason fought a despairing struggle. You are innocent, Petenord. Do not grieve over what you have not caused. She has not sent you any messages. Go down to your work, lift your foot, and you are over the wall. Push with one finger, and the gate is open. 
No, he could not. Most of the time he was in a stupor, a trance. His thoughts were indistinct, as when on the point of falling asleep. He only knew one thing, that he must stay where he was. The news came to her, lying and fading in emulation with the rootless birches. Petter Nord, with whom you played one summer day, is in the graveyard waiting for you. Petter Nord, whom your uncle has frightened out of his senses, cannot leave the graveyard until your flower-decked coffin comes to fetch him. The girl opened her eyes as if to look at the world once more. She sent a message to Petter Nord. She was angry at his mad pranks. Why could she not die in peace? She had never wished that he should have any pangs of conscience for her sake. The bearer of the message came back without Petternord. He could not come. The wall was too high and the gate too strong. There was only one who could free him. During those days they thought of nothing else in the little town. He is there. He is there still, they told one another every day. Is he mad? they asked most often, and some who had talked with him answered that he certainly would be when she came. But they were exceedingly proud of that martyr to love, who gave a glory to the town. The poor took him food. The rich stole up on the mountain to catch a glimpse of him. But Edith, who could not move, who lay helpless and dying, she who had so much time to think, with what was she occupying herself? What thoughts revolved in her brain day and night? Oh, Petter Nord, Petter Nord! Must she always see before her the man who loved her, who was losing his mind for her sake, who really actually was in the graveyard waiting for her coffin? See, that was something for the steel spring in her nature. That was something for her imagination, something for her benumbed senses. To think what he meant to do when she could come, to imagine what he would do if she should not come there as a corpse. They talked of it in the whole town, talked of it and nothing else. As the cities of ancient times had loved their martyrs, the little village loved the unhappy Petternord but no one liked to go into the graveyard and talk to him. He looked wilder each day. The obscurity of madness sank ever closer about him. Why does she not try to get well? they said of Edith. It is unjust of her to die. Edith was almost angry. She who was so tired of life, must she be compelled to take up the heavy burden again? But, nevertheless, she began an honest effort. She felt what a work of repairing and mending was going on in her body with seething force during these weeks. And no material was spared. She consumed incredible quantities of those things which give strength and life, whatever they may be, malt extract or cod liver oil, fresh air or sunshine, dreams or love. And what glorious days they were, long, warm, and sunny. At last she got the doctor's permission to be carried up there. The whole town was in alarm when she undertook the journey. 
Would she come down with a madman? Could the misery of those weeks be blotted out of his brain? Would the exertions she had made to begin life again be profitless? And if it were so, how would it go with her? As she passed by, pale with excitement, but still full of hope, there was cause enough for anxiety. No one concealed from themselves that Petter Nord had taken quite too large a place in her imagination. She was the most eager of all in the worship of that strange saint. All restraints had fallen from her when she had heard what he suffered for her sake. But how would the sight of him affect her enthusiasm? There is nothing romantic in a madman. When she had been carried up to the gate of the graveyard, she left her bearers and walked alone up the broad middle path. Her gaze wandered round the flowering spot, but she saw no one. Suddenly she heard a faint rustle in a clump of fir trees, and she saw a wild, distorted face staring from it. Never had she seen terror so plainly stamped on a face. She was frightened herself at the sight of it, mortally frightened. She could hardly restrain herself from running away. Then a great holy feeling welled up in her. There was no longer any thought of love or enthusiasm, but only grief that a fellow being, one of the unhappy ones who passed through the veil of tears with her, should be destroyed. The girl remained. She did not give way a single step. She let him slowly accustom himself to the sight of her, but she put all the strength she possessed in her gaze. She drew the man to her with the whole force of the will that had conquered the illness in herself. He came forward out of his corner, pale, wild, and unkempt. He advanced towards her, but the terror never left his face. He looked as if he were fascinated by a wild beast which came to tear him to pieces. When he was quite close to her, she put both her hands on his shoulders and looked smiling into his face. Come, Petter Nord, what is the matter with you? You must go from here. What do you mean by staying so long up here in the graveyard, Petter Nord? He trembled and sank down, but she felt that she subdued him with her eyes. Her words, on the other hand, seemed to have absolutely no meaning to him. She changed her tone a little. Listen to what I say, Petter Nord. I am not dead. I am not going to die. I have got well in order to come up here and save you. He still stood in the same dull terror. Again there came a change in her voice. You have not caused my death, she said more tenderly. You have given me life. She repeated it again and again, and her voice at last was trembling with emotion, thick with weeping. But he did not understand anything of what she said. Petter Nord, I love you so much, so much, she burst out. He was just as unmoved. She knew nothing more to try with him. She would have to take him down with her to the town and let time and care help. 
It is not easy to say what the dreams she had taken up there with her were, and what she had expected from this meeting with a man who loved her. Now, when she was to give it all up and treat him as a madman only, she felt such pain, as if she was about to lose the dearest thing in life had given her. And in that bitterness of loss, she drew him to her and kissed him on the forehead. It was meant as a farewell to both happiness and life. She felt her strength fail her. A mortal weakness came over her. But then she thought she saw a feeble sign of life in him. He was not quite so limp and dull. His features were twitching. He trembled more and more violently. She watched with ever-growing alarm. He was waking. But to what? At last he began to weep. She led him away to a tomb. She sat down on it, pulled him down in front of her, and laid his head on her lap. She sat and caressed him while he wept. He was like someone waking from a nightmare. Why am I weeping? he asked himself. Oh, I know. I had such a terrible dream. But it is not true. She is alive. I have not killed her. So foolish to weep for a dream. Gradually everything grew clear to him, but his tears continued to flow. She sat and caressed him, but he wept still for a long time. I feel such a need of weeping, he said. Then he looked up and smiled. Is it Easter now? he asked. What do you mean by now? It can be called Easter when the dead rise again, he continued. Thereupon, as if they had been intimate many years, he began to tell her about the spirit of fasting and of his revolt against her rule. It is Easter now, and the end of her reign, she said. But when he realized that Edith was sitting there and caressing him, he had to weep again. He needed so much to weep. All the distrust of life which misfortunes had brought to the little Vermland boy needed tears to wash it away. Distrust that love and joy, beauty and strength blossomed on the earth. Distrust in himself. All must go. All did go. For it was Easter. The dead lived, and the spirit of fasting would never again come into power. End of Part 4 of The Spirit of Fasting and Petter Nord From Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack Read by Lars Rolander